Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It is Thursday mid-morning, early afternoon, so I think that's enough time for everybody to have gotten their questions in. So uh, we should have a full list today, so let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer wanted to know that why do only snack adapters work for light guns on Mister, and not other low latency game controller adapters like the Rafnet or Daemon Byte adapters? And this is the one and only scenario in which a millisecond or two will affect gaming, because light guns are designed to read the flashes on screen within the exact timings of the console. And I'm kind of oversimplifying that a bit, but basically the zero latency that a snack adapter would provide is the only way that that would work. Whereas the one or two milliseconds that the Rafnet or Daemonabyte adapters might, might add to it would cause issues. And those are variable between almost zero and like two milliseconds. So it's possible that if you plug in a Daemonabyte adapter, you could shoot the screen 20 times and two times you'll hit a duck and duck hunt and then the other times you might not. Uh, but overall, that's why. It's just because the entire system is calibrated to itself. So from the time you squeeze that trigger, when it flashes on screen, it processes what it sees on the screen within a millisecond worth of time. So that's really it. And at this point, snack adapters are really only necessary for light guns. Some people prefer to use them just for peace of mind, knowing that the latency is at zero. It's not one or two, it's zero. And even though that doesn't really matter, I do understand having peace of mind and just wanting to know that. But the only necessity for the snack adapters at this point are things that are calibrated down to the millisecond. And the most common is light gun. I think there might be a few other accessories that might need that. But overall, I think that would be it. So great question. But um, if you're not using light guns and you just want a really low latency way to play original controllers, definitely check out the Rafnet or Daemon Bytes. Uh, and I've been using the Daemon Bytes for quite a while on Mr. and really just have nothing but good things to say. The importer also wanted to say that concerning last week's Q&A, if Jason Guffey has original PS2 games and not backups, a mix of Free McBoot and Mechapone would allow the booting of imported PS2 games on any consoles. And then the importer put a link to a tutorial. So, uh, very cool tidbit. I haven't really tried that because I, I usually just prefer to, to back up the discs that I'm using and do it that way, but that's definitely a great tidbit for original discs, so I wanted to mention it and leave the link. Over on the YouTube subscribe service, Scotter140 said, in regards to the discussion of 4x3 aspect ratio, they always use the 240p test suite to calibrate the geometry of CRTs. So is the 240p test suite perfect squares and circles, or are the images formatted to compensate for the different aspects? Should you use one console over the other? So uh, I think they use perfect squares and circles, uh, but... I don't know how that relates to the original games. So is a perfect circle in the 240p test suite just to calibrate your monitor, but then you'd have to go back to uh, the original artist and how they designed it. I think that's kind of a confusing question and one that I don't really know the answer to, but I can offer some more direction onto that. For me personally, when I start using a CRT, the number one thing that I check if a CRT has the easy ability to, because some don't. But the number one thing I check is horizontal and vertical position and size. And if you have a monitor that that's easy to calibrate, that's something I would do anytime I really sunk into a game. So firing up for a quick play session, no, I wouldn't. But like if I was going to sit down to play a favorite game, knowing that I was going to spend an hour or two, I would, whatever console I was using, fire up the 240p test suite, load up the patterns, and just adjust the height and width. 
Now, once again, on some monitors, you got to pop open the back and, you know, adjust it with screws. And I wouldn't do it for that. But on a BVM or some of the VGA monitors I've used, the controls are right there. So while it might sound a little OCD and overkill, it's really like a minute and a half's worth of work. It's not crazy if the controls are easily available. So that's the that's what I would definitely suggest if you have the ability to do so just to make sure things like overscan are set properly and all of that other stuff. I wouldn't personally obsess about squares and circles because that's really something you would more run into when scaling an image because while you would run into it on original CRTs with, you know, original consoles, that's just the way it would have always looked. So I just choose not to obsess over that because that's how the artists saw it when they were testing their games. That's how we all saw it. It's really only circle versus square, square pixels versus four by three aspect ratio. It's only really something you run into when you're using it on flat panels. Um, the only other thing I would suggest is if you had a TV that a CRT TV that was a real pain to set the positioning of the image, I would pick your favorite console. So for me, it would be the Super Nintendo, and I would load up the test suite, and I would go through the trouble of adjusting horizontal and vertical positioning and size, knowing that it might be a little bit off for other consoles, but like a consumer grade TV is always going to be a little bit off. So I would just set it to my favorite so that my favorite games would always kind of look centered, knowing that, you know, part of the charm and allure of a CRT is its imperfections. Whereas you have a calibrated OLED TV nowadays, you see everything for better or worse. So uh, I know that wasn't a hundred percent what you were looking for, but I think that hopefully sums up uh, kind of the whole aspect of it. No, no pun intended. But um, if you want me to elaborate a little bit more, please let me know and uh, and let me know exactly which which parts of it, because this might be something that I defer to Firebrand X and ask for his input or some other friends. But I think that's kind of my feeling on all of that. Like when playing on CRTs, just embrace the fact that that's kind of how it looks. Over on Patreon, KelvSYC wants to know how to set your Wii's aspect ratio output when you're using the RetroTINK 5X. Do you set it to 4x3 and let the TINK 5X stretch it, um, or do you just set them both to match? And I would set them both to match unless you're running into any issues. Uh, I've tested it before, and it looked great through the RetroTINK 5X. But that's normally something that you would want to have match. And you'd also obviously want your TV to match. And the one issue I do run into all the time is the TV that I use very often for testing, that cheap LG TV from 2018. Um, whatever resolution you send it, it sometimes saves the aspect ratio and sometimes doesn't. So if I send it 480p and set the TV to 16 by 9 and then I send it 1080p, sometimes it stays to 16 by 9 and sometimes it remembers a different format. And other times I have to unplug the TV, wait a couple seconds and plug back in for the aspect ratio to work right. I don't know why, it just kind of is. Uh, so that's the only thing I would suggest is set everything to match, make sure your TV is set correctly and everything should look okay. But the Wii is kind of weird. And out of all the video captures I've done, the one console that still gives me trouble is Wii. And I don't really understand why. And a lot of the experts that are uh, really great at video capture don't really understand why either, because it works for them. So obviously I'm missing something, but I mean, I have done pretty solid captures of a bunch of consoles. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the issue is, but I think just to simplify things, set everything to 16 by nine and see how it looks. And it should just work fine. 
Justin Sizon has an original launch edition PlayStation that has both an AV multi-out and separate composite and audio ports on the back, the RCA jacks. And Justin wants to know if it's safe to use both of those at the same time. And the answer is yes, because of the circuitry inside the PlayStation. So excellent question, but this is not a Y cable scenario in which there's multiple options that all just go through the same thing. Uh, I believe... I believe they're even independent outputs, but even if they're not, the circuitry in there is totally safe. And this is something that I've confirmed with Steve from HD Retrovision, with Voltar, and a bunch of other friends that could really look at the circuit and, and verify the suspicion that I had that it was safe. But it supposedly it totally is. So your scenario of running both HD Retrovision component cables from the multi-out and composite from the RCA to decide uh, how you want to use it through the RetroTINK 5X Pro is a perfectly solid scenario. And in fact, I would suggest that if anybody has a just a consumer-grade CRT with component and composite inputs, or I guess if you're in Europe with SCART and composite inputs, I would do the same thing because there are many games like Symphony of the Night that you would want the sharpest image possible. But there's other games that have 3D graphics that genuinely benefit from the smoothing of composite video. You know, the, you know, the, I don't know if you want to call it smoothing. The the noise, the inherent noise that composite video adds sometimes helps with those older 3D games because when you play them in RGB or component, and especially when you play them on flat panels, you really start to see all of the different noise and things that were meant to blend together with composite. So I think that's an absolutely awesome solution. And that's even how I have one of my setups wired here. I have my JVC consumer set with a G-Comp switch and all of the outputs of the G-Comp go to the component input and the composite input. And then I have a Y cable for audio, which is safe. Uh, I think it's especially safe when in a scenario like this, when it's all going to the same TV. So uh, yeah, it's definitely an awesome setup. And in this specific scenario, totally safe to use. An example of when it might not be safe to use is if you had something that like a, a breakout adapter that broke out the multi-out of like, let's say a Super Nintendo, and you had the, an extra multi-out connector and a yellow composite video connector. You wouldn't want to use composite from both at the same time. But that's just speculation and, and customization stuff that doesn't exist. Your scenario is totally fine, so good question. Nick Gamewell said they have a Simulation 1 action chair for the NES that they're about to put up for sale because they no longer have the space for it. And their question is, before they sell it, is this something that's worth documenting? Other than taking pictures of the circuit boards and joystick connections, is anything else required? They're just not sure what to do because they're pretty sure that it's very rare, but don't know if anyone would care to have the technical information about it. Um, so I have no idea what that thing is. I've never seen one before, and I'm certainly curious about it. So... I think you're on the right track with take a bunch of decent quality pictures. You don't need a fancy expensive camera and a, you know, a professional lighting booth, but you know, turn on all the lights in the room, take some good pictures of it, make sure it's not blurry or anything like that. And yeah, take pictures of the circuit boards, the buttons, uh, the controller ports, and really to give people an idea of what it is and what it does. And this way, if it's ever possible to reverse engineer it, they would have all of the data they need. So that's a really neat chair. I I'd actually going to look that up and kind of figure out more of what it does and what it is, because that looks pretty neat. Um, I'm not really sure what you'd use it for, but there were a lot of weird accessories like that back in the day that, you know, you could only use it for one game, and it was really fun for that one game, but 
no others. So yeah, pretty cool. But um, I would just document as much as you can. Uh, and I know I've been saying this for three years now, but the wiki is really close to launching. And at the very least, that'll be a place you could just dump the pictures and a link to what it is. Scanline City wants to know why we don't see many people using Sega Model 2 or Model 3 arcade boards with super guns. There's so many good games on those platforms. Is it really that hard to convert it to JAMA? That's a really good question, and I'm not really sure the answer of it either. I don't think anything like that is very hard to convert, because even if you didn't have the ability to design your own circuit boards, you could always just use a JAMA extender and then kind of cut and rewire any of the uh, different paths or different pins that don't line up. And while there are a ton of pins on there, I don't think every one would need to be rearranged. It's only the ones that don't match. So uh, it's a good question, but hey, maybe this is a call for some of the very amazing designers out there to do a, a quick adapter board for the original Sega Model 2 or 3s that allow them to plug into JAMA. I vaguely remember them being out there, but I don't know if there's an open source project or something that people could just make themselves, because that's one of, the, one of the few projects that I would say even a beginner could handle, because you would just need to order the boards, um, which, you know, provided the boards have the right layouts, and then solder on your own JAMA input and out... Uh, actually, no, you would just have to solder the JAMA input side because the other side would just have the, um, the pads on it. So it's an excellent question, but I don't really know the answer to that one. Joaquin Coelho wants to know how to use a RetroTINK 5X with analog speakers. And I'm assuming that means speakers with RCA or 3.5 millimeter left and right inputs. And the general advice I would give for that is either get an HDMI audio extractor or an HDMI splitter. And I would usually lean towards the splitter because you could also use that for streaming or for a bunch of other reasons. Uh, and plenty of splitters offer RCA audio outputs or 3.5 millimeter jack outputs as well. So that would be the easiest solution for most people and it would provide you more options and a tool that you could always use with something else. However, uh, Joaquin mentioned they use a G-SCART switch. So they were thinking about using one of those SCART adapters with audio breakout. Um, that is a perfectly good solution and depending on where you live and what's available around you or just on eBay or AliExpress or something, that could be a much cheaper option. I've seen some of those breakouts go for like $3 with free shipping. So if that's the case, yeah, absolutely. Provided you're running everything through the G-SCART. But I would also consider the HDMI breakout just in case, what if you ever use a different input for the RetroTINK 5X? Or, or heck, what if you just need to use it for something else? But um, I'll leave a link to the ones that I use. Uh, but once again, if you already are using a G-SCART switch, you already own it like a $3 adapter seems like something you might want to pick up anyway, just because it's very cheap and it would definitely do the trick in your scenario. Andrew Przbilski said that they were just notified that their open MVS kit has shipped and they were looking for a power supply recommendation. I'll leave a link to the main OpenMVS page on RetroRGB, but I embedded three links to universal PSUs, meaning they'll work on all power systems. Two are the type where it's like a brick in the middle and then you just plug in a cheap $1 AC cord on one side and has a DC on the other. And one is a wall wart style. Uh, I think the first link I put is the one that most people are using and have really great success with, but the other two should definitely work as well. Uh, so that's definitely it. And I would just double check that your kit didn't come with a PSU. I think some do and some don't. And, uh, you know, Avram lists all of that stuff on the site. So I would just double check, but the, I'll leave a link down below for anybody that wants more info on the OpenMVS, as well as what power supplies and stuff to use with it. 
Anthony Macaluso was looking for a recommendation for a good hot air rework station for removing surface mount components. And I use, I believe it's the 858D. I'll leave a link to the one that I've been using. Uh, and so far, so good. I don't really have any complaints. I don't use it very often. I use my desoldering iron a lot more. But obviously for surface mount chips and stuff like that, you kind of have to use a hot air rework station. And I have a few friends that use this one, so I would be comfortable recommending it just with the caveat that it's a $35 rework station, so keep that in mind. It might not be the best tool, but it certainly worked great for me, and I would definitely watch some of Voltar's videos where he uses his, because there's uh, like good techniques and ways to hold it that really help when you're removing stuff, so you don't end up burning other components or blowing off like surface mount capacitors while you're also working on the chip and stuff like that. Uh, also, I'm not sure why that link wasn't on the modding tools section of the site. I just dropped a link at the bottom and I'll add more info soon for that, so thank you for the reminder on that part. Finney wanted to chime in about the discussion from last week regarding glue around components inside any kind of equipment, and they said adhesive on components in power supplies is usually some kind of electronics-grade silicone, sometimes referred to as silastic. Uh, to their best understanding, the main reason you tend to find this in power supplies is that you have a lot of big, heavy components like large electrolytic capacitors that are through hole and they aren't held in place super well by just their solder. It could be to help them survive shipping, but they would also guess that it's mostly there so that the product passes vibration testing. Vibration testing is a pretty standard part of the development process for an electronic product. It might be unintuitive, but extended vibration can actually break components off much more easily than a hard drop or other physical shock. In the case of a power supply board, they often have tall and heavy electrolytic capacitors that are soldered into non-plated through holes on a single-sided uh, phenolic board. Hopefully I said that right. And this particular combination is really susceptible. Vibration testing is done both just to make sure that the product won't fall apart in use, but also because it's included in the suite of mechanical stress tests that shipping carriers look for. Carriers like FedEx, UPS, etc. are more likely to accept the cost of a broken unit if the product and its packaging have passed something like ISTA 3A or their own testing routine. So yeah, it's in a way for shipping, but not necessarily in the direct sense of making it sure it survives, more as the part of the carrier's deal for accepting liability. Unless you're leaving your console in a machine shop or on top of a server rack or somewhere else where it might be subjected to strong vibrations, I'd say shipping would be the only time to worry about that stuff. And even then, it most likely will survive being shipped if packed well. That said, you could buy electronics-grade silicon on Amazon. Just make sure it's electronics-grade as normal RTV silicon off-gasses acidic acid, which can corrode stuff. To uh, do wear gloves and apply it and dry it in a well-ventilated area as electronics-grade silicon is not healthy to get on your skin or inhale. Um, now, they have a caveat that they're not an expert at this stuff. This is just what they've gathered over the years. And they recently did some Googling and found that a good number of people actually recommended against soldering capacitors flush to the board because it puts more stress on the seal of the bottom of the cap. Agreed. Uh, similarly, they've started following the recommendation of pre-bending the capacitor leads rather than just jamming them in there. 
If the leads are under stress when they're installed, this could cause the seal on the bottom of the cap to leak prematurely, or so the internet says. Uh, so while I am not an expert at this stuff, I agree 100% with every word I just read, which I'm happy about because if I had to just reread all of that again, <laughs> that would have been frustrating. But all of that is good info. And that did remind me of when we were doing stress testing of the medical grade computers that we had, but we didn't have any large capacitors and we weren't allowed to use internal power supplies. So we didn't need any kind of uh, adhesive on the inside. But the medical grade uh, vibration testing was way more rigid and stuff like that because they wanted to make sure that not only would it survive, but if anything cracked, it wouldn't emit um, any kind of radio waves or something that could interfere with medical equipment. So yeah, you're just giving me flashbacks to my days in the test chambers. But I think all of that's true. And I think that the final conclusion is exactly what I would have recommended anyway, in that when you're putting caps in, bend the legs, uh, or if you if they're long legs on the cap, you can just jam them in there first, but make sure to bend them a little bit before soldering them in for through-hole, obviously. Um, make sure that it's not putting so much pressure on it. And then I like to get it close to the board, but I like to get it off the board, not just for putting pressure on the bottom and not just for putting pressure on the legs, because unless the holes are perfectly aligned, if you put it flush, it might squeeze it one way or the other. But I also like to do that so that if it ever leaks, you could see underneath. So if you shine a flashlight in, you'll be able to see, is there gunk building up underneath or is it just the color of the PCB? So I agree with all of those things. I also wouldn't bother adding any kind of glue or silicone adhesive to it. Um, unless you really knew it was like a giant jumbo cap that was super heavy. Uh, so great info. Thanks for chiming in. And uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the the trigger trip down memory lane from, from the uh, PC, uh, uh, the PC manufacturing testing thing I used to do. I don't know. That's a, a long conversation in itself. But thanks for chiming in. Paulo Passati said they're looking to connect an X68000 to a modern flat panel display, and they were looking for a processor that could handle 15, 24, and 31 kilohertz signals with resolutions ranging from 256 by 240 all the way up to 1024 by 1024. Um, so... That's a good question, and I know that a lot of people that I know that own an X68K said that a lot of processors work with some resolutions, but not others. Uh, I believe the Retroscaler A1 sort of worked uh, on VGA monitors, VGA CRT monitors, but not so much modern flat panels. So I would start with an OSSC, because that seems to be pretty compatible. Um, you could, if you wanted to, try to use an HD15 to start to combine the RGB HV output of that to RGBS and have a SCART connector to use with other scalers, or I guess even the OSSC because that doesn't have a low-pass filter on the VGA input. But at the very least, I would try to find an OSSC and see if that works. And it could be something where it works in 15 and 31 kilohertz with certain combinations of resolutions. Um, it could scale some, but not others, so that you'd have to just pass through some to your flat panel. But I don't know, that's a, a tricky one. So I'm going to have to say that I don't want to give a confident answer on this. I want to say maybe start with an OSSC, but anybody in the chat, please chime in if you have a solution that you know works with the X68K, because that's a really awesome and impressive old computer, and uh, I think more people would want to start using it on flat panels. 
Retro Music Dan said a while back, one of their SNES consoles seemingly started corrupting save data. Happened on Zelda and Metroid, so they figured it was the console. Where do I suggest they start investigating and fixing this? That's weird. I've never seen an SNES console corrupt save data. Um, the first thing I would always do is make sure your power supply is good. Um, I've had original SNES power supplies go bad on me, so I always use the triads these days. Um, I'll put links to that in the description. It could very well be that you bought two games at the same time when you were a kid and both the batteries just sort of started dying. Um, I mean, that's not impossible. It's a little unlikely that they would die at the same time, but you know, maybe if you're talking about you played Zelda three months ago and it corrupted the save game file, and then you played Metroid today and it's corrupted it, that's a little bit more believable that it would be both batteries at the same time. But I mean, change the batteries, make sure to use a good power supply, clean the, uh, the cartridges and the cartridge pins. And I don't know, maybe like reset the console before power, powering it off and taking the game out or something just to make sure it gets a moment to save the data. But that's a tough one. Um, anybody have any suggestions or anybody in the chat has, uh, uh, has run into that at all? Because that's certainly not something I've, I've heard of. I've definitely heard of that with clone consoles, but that's not surprising to anybody in original SNES. That's weird. So I'm certainly interested to hear anybody's opinion on that, but it wouldn't hurt to upgrade the power supply anyway. Jeffrey Pierce said on some previous podcasts, I've mentioned that there may be a solution forthcoming for a great RGB signal for non one chip SNES and Super Famicom owners. Would I be able to share anything more on this project? It's something I think a lot of people would be excited about, myself included. Me too. Um, I am really excited about this, but uh, my portion of the project stalled completely because of the part shortage. Uh, I got the PCB and some components, but not all. And all of the components in the DigiKey and Mauser part list that I have were out of stock, back ordered forever. There was somebody on another Discord that offered to make me one and sell it to me, but I'd, I never heard back from them. And that was like more than six months ago. So I don't know what happened there. I'm not sure if they weren't able to make them or if they also had a part shortage issue. So as far as status of the project goes, um, the best way to describe it is it seems to be very promising, but just hold off longer because the part shortage, even if I was able to, to dig up one or two parts just to get the testing done, there's no way this could be made in mass quantities, even 50 or 100 until the parts come back in stock. And there's another solution, a third solution that was previously un, a new a new thing, previously not done before, that is easier and not as good, but an improvement. So, uh, and I haven't tested that one yet either. I've just seen pictures and talked to the people developing it. So my very unfortunate answer to you would be just hold off a few more months and hopefully we'll be able to figure this out by the end of the year. But the part shortage really did halt so many projects I was a part of, which, you know, selfishly, I was kind of too overwhelmed with projects anyway, but you know, that I'm starting to catch up now and I'm going back to all these older ones going like, all right, I finally have an extra few minutes of time. What about this? Dead because of part shortage. Oh, that stinks. What about this one? 
dead because of the part shortage. So hopefully within a few months, things will start to bounce back. But um, as soon as there's something available, even if it's just a preview of a product to come, um, but you know, a solid product that we've tested, I will definitely make a video and, and put it out there just because I know a lot of people are wondering that as well. So sorry for the lack of info. Two questions from Elmer M. First, is there any input lag when plugging into any of the two HDMI inputs of a FrameMeister? I tried testing this in the lag testing retroscalers video I did, and I couldn't get the HDMI input to work with the time sleuth, which was kind of weird. Um, I could probably go back in and try to retest with other devices now, but I think it would be safe to assume that it's going to match about what you would see from the analog inputs. So if you're just passing through and digitizing a signal it might only be a few milliseconds if you're trying to scale a progressive scan signal it might be about a frame frame and a half and of course if you feed it an interlaced signal it's going to be more lag just like the regular frame meister always was so um, I, I wouldn't say that there is a lot of lag. I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't say not to use it, but there are, depending on what you need, um, you know, it should be fine, but keep in mind that it's probably going to add something. Next question, are used Extron crosspoints on eBay mainly plug and play ready, or do they need servicing before adding it to a gaming setup? So two answers to that assuming everything's fine it should just be plug and play you need um, either bnc discard adapters so that would actually be scart to bnc uh, or you need some rca adapters for component video or something like that but i would still count that as plug and play because you just need to screw everything together but you just got to make sure that it's in good working order it wasn't you know configured to do something weird you might have to do a factory reset or something but Generally speaking, I think it's plug and play. I just wanted to make sure to give a word of caution because, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, it's definitely plug and play. And then you're the one person that gets it that needs to do a factory reset or something. So I, I think you should be safe, but I just wanted to give a very typical nerdy words of caution for buying anything used. Charles Madeira is looking into doing some NES mods and wanted to know if I had any suggestions for cartridge slots or any new modern recommendations for doing mods to their NES. As far as cartridge slots goes, I have a hard time recommending anything because anytime I find a store that has a really good 72-pin connector, I'll check back in a year and, uh, you know, they won't be in stock anymore. They might be different quality. So I would always check with console5.com and see if they have any good ones. Um, you know, if, they, if they're listed, they're most likely good quality because Luke doesn't really ever, ever list anything that's low quality unless it's, you know, very obvious. Like, I think he sells a bunch of those $2 AliExpress cases but lists them for the purpose of like, hey, if you need a, a SCART head or an end to make your own cable, like here's a junky cable you could use for other projects. So Luke's always straightforward about that stuff. So if you see a 72 pin connector on there and it's not, there's no disclaimer or anything, it's probably good. Other than that, I'm all ears if anybody else has any recommendations for cartridge connectors. As far as other mods that I strongly recommend or anything like that, um, I would say that I would personally recap the NES if it were me. In fact, I have. And not all modders like to do that. A lot of people say, oh, if the caps are still working, you might not want to change them. But the NES is just too old and the caps are going to go at some point. So I would definitely do a recap on it. But I would also deal with the RF box and decide what to do from there. So 
It's really hard to remove the RF box, and if you're comfortable modding, I would do it, but it requires a hot air rework station and a ton of patience, because if you, if you start tugging on it, you could rip traces, you could totally ruin both the motherboard and the RF box. But the reason I take mine off is because the capacitor that is always leaking is the one in the RF box, which is impossible to get to. So I take that out so it's easier to disassemble because once it's out, it's pretty easy to take apart. If you try to disassemble it while it's still in the console, it's pretty rough. But that's the one cap that always leaks is the big power cap on there. So I would take that off and decide what to do. You could take it all apart, clean it up, clean all the gunk off because I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of capacitor fluid on it. And if you want to leave it completely stock, I would replace the capacitor, put it all back together, and now you have yourself an NES that's going to last a long time, and you don't have to worry about stuff like that. If it leaked really bad, you could try to look for Bordy's. Uh, I think it's an open source. Well, it is an open source project. I don't know if anybody sells them pre-made, but you could do Bordy's replacement board, which is pretty much a drop-in replacement for the original. Um, he just reverse engineered the RF box and, uh, and just kind of has a, an updated power circuit in there so you could use modern components. But if you were looking to do an RGB mod, I would consider using the Real Phoenix's evolution of Bordy's board, which not only has the newer power circuit, so you don't have to worry about replacing the cap, it also has a multi-out connector, I think it's either Genesis 2 or 8-pin mini-din style, that allow you to do a no-cut RGB mod. So for me personally, this was a no-brainer. I get to replace the power circuit where I know that the capacitor in there has probably leaked and done some damage. I get to not cut any of the case of the NES and still have a bunch of other features built in. And I believe that even includes in-game reset. So if you're going to do a NES RGB mod, I would add that with it just because it seems to be a really great fit. If you're going to leave it completely stock, maybe leave it all stock and just definitely take the time to replace that capacitor. So I'll leave a link to the Real Phoenix's board that I talked about, but overall, I think that's kind of my thoughts on NES modding these days. Um, I kind of been going back and forth with which mods I like to do to which consoles, and the NES I have now is completely stock, but fully recapped, including inside the RF box. And uh, now I kind of, I use NES ROMs on the Mister, but I do use the original NES whenever you know, blast and nostalgia, whenever I'm doing testing, I really have gotten a new appreciation for consoles in their original form, especially when they output really good quality video anyway, because if you're playing on a CRT, the NES composite video output's pretty good. So I certainly don't have any complaints on that. If you're playing on a flat panel, of course, I would want RGB or something else. So that's totally different. But yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. Hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction. Matt Kuhn said they currently have some of their setup going to a CRT with component inputs, but they also have some going to an S-Video CRT. This is odd they know, but the S-Video CRT gives the look I was used to as a kid. There's nothing odd about wanting multiple CRTs, Matt. Not sure if you've seen the picture of the CRT wall, but I also prefer choices for CRTs. Um, anyway, back to your question. They'd like to make their setup usable on either TV at the same time. They're looking to convert the component signal to an S-video signal and are having trouble finding anything that does this direct conversion. They currently own the Ashenworks RGB to YC, but this only accepts RGBS or uh, RGBHV and SCART, and they're wondering if using the RetroTank Comp to RGB would help accomplish the conversion. So that would be Comp to RGB, then RGB to S-video. 
They were thinking they could feed the component cables to a switch box and use one of the outputs of that to go from there. Do I think that would be acceptable? Do I see any issues with that setup? So that's one of those things where it's going to work or it's not. And I know that's not at all what you were looking for. You were looking for a solid answer. But whenever you're messing around with analog video signals, so many things could go wrong. So any single conversion, like the comp to RGB might work flawlessly for your setup. And the RGB to YC might work flawlessly, but you put them together and there might be some issues. So if that's really what you were looking to do, um, you could certainly give it a try. The other thing that you could do is do the opposite and use a Core U transcoder to go from S-Video to Component Video and kind of do it that way. Um, it's kind of interesting that you have this setup, though, because I'm wondering what differences that you're seeing. Because S-Video and Component Video are very, very similar in quality. Um, way more similar than composite to either one of those. So I'm wondering if what you're actually seeing is the difference in your CRTs, which is the difference that I appreciate when I'm using all of my weird ass CRTs that I have piled up over there. So the Core U transcoder might not only solve your problem, but it might be a good test just to see like, oh, hey, S-Video on this when I split the output actually looks you know, it looks the, almost the same as component, and it's the TV's differences that I'm looking at, not the signals. So that's something I would consider, but either way, it sounds like a neat setup, and, you know, there's no wrong answer to this, right? Do whatever your eyes prefer. Maybe you could totally see the difference between S-Video and component, and it's not a CRT's difference, and you want to route it that way. That's totally cool, but... Uh, depending on your budget and what your final goals are, you could try the comp to RGB, and if it doesn't work, then do the opposite and do what I said with the core U, but you're going to have to make a decision on where to take the gamble with your money. Sorry. Oliver Clare is waiting on a Game Boy Advance consoleizer kit to ship and wants to know what's the best Game Boy Advance to buy for something like this. And I think they're all the same as long as it's not an SP. I think these kits only work with the original Game Boy Advance. But if it were me personally, I would find any Game Boy Advance that's working but with a broken screen and maybe a beat up case. And I would personally use one of the, the bigger case versions, which I think that's what you got when you said full case version. Because I don't need motion control or I don't need to use the original Game Boy Advance. I just want to treat it like a console, plug in my Super Nintendo controller and be done with it. So I would both try to save some money and breathe life into an otherwise dead console by buying something with a broken screen and a beat up case if possible. If you were going to get the facehugger version, the one that was from my original video where you could still use the Game Boy Advance, the only other thing I might consider is if the case is all beat up, uh, get another case or maybe get a, a button pad replacement kit. But other than that, I mean, I don't think there's any model to get. I think I would just figure out whichever one's working, but is beat up in other ways so that you could breathe new life into that one. Good question, though. Jason Guffey has a Sega Saturn and has been getting some video dropouts and found that the video connection was a bit wiggly so that the weight of the cable alone is enough to slightly get it to drop signal. And this is something that I've had with a lot of different consoles. And I even had one master system that I thought didn't output RGB because the control or the AV port and back was kind of finicky like that. So the number one thing to do in a situation like that is reflow the pins on the bottom of the motherboard where the multi-out connector is. Add some fresh solder, um, you know, 
put when I say put a lot of solder in, don't just put a tiny little dab, but obviously don't flood the pad so that you're spilling onto others. Make sure you have a good amount of solder in there. Uh, give it some time to heat up, not so much time that it burns the motherboard or melts the plastic, but just do a very careful, good job addering, addering, adding fresh solder to the multi-out connector. And that's been the fix in almost all cases that I've seen. I have seen a few consoles, I don't think ever a Saturn, but I have seen a few consoles just need a brand new multi-out connector altogether, which isn't too bad, but I would do this first anyway, both to save yourself some money and because it's easier to desolder these with fresh solder in them anyway. So do this first, see what happens, and it should be completely and totally fine. But if not, then I would change the multi-out connector. And of course, look at anything else in the area. Is it possible that the flexing of the, you know, microscopic flexing of the motherboard isn't actually messing with the multi-out, but maybe there's a capacitor, a surface mount cap that's like mostly on the board, but slightly separated from it. So just do a visual inspection and see if you see anything that stands out. Um, many, you know, if there's any components, just touch them with your finger and, you know, I wouldn't pull on them because these are all older components, but like if you just touch something and it feels like it's popping off, reflow that too as well, just for the heck of it. But that should be, um, that should get you where you need to go. But if not, you could try another multi out or just, uh, you know, message me and we'll see what else we could do. Uh, lastly, Jason Guffey wants to know, am I a pet guy? So I've always liked animals. Always. I've never been one of those people that hates animals. I'm always suspicious of people that hates animals. No offense. Just saying. Uh, but I've never really been a pet guy, but my brother-in-law has one of the coolest freaking dogs I've ever seen in my life. Super smart. And it's definitely my buddy. So I feel like there's probably a dog at some point in my future, but not, not now. I'm still... Still, it's not, it wouldn't be fair now because I wouldn't have the time to spend. I wouldn't have the time to go walk the dog and hang out with it. Uh, I'm mostly just still getting settled in the house and trying to keep retro RGB going, which is always a challenge. So, um, it's never really a pet guy, but I definitely always liked dogs and uh, probably going to have one at some point. So, uh, yeah, good question. Fun question, though. Alexander Alvarado has a Dreamcast with a DC Digital and a mode, but they also want to use it on a consumer CRT TV for light gun games. So they picked up an RGB cable and an RGB to comp, but they're having compatibility issues. So I would try a few different things at, uh, before you do anything else. First, set the DC Digital to cable detect mode and not to force 480p or anything like that, because that could be messing with the video output. Also make sure the mode doesn't have any patches in to like force a widescreen mode or force any kind of video modes, just in case. I doubt that's a thing, but good to test. And of course, make sure that the region of your console matches the region of your TV. So don't go NTSC Dreamcast to PAL CRT or PAL Dreamcast to NTSC CRT. But assuming that's all together, that should work. And I've definitely tested it in scenarios like that before. If you've double and triple checked this and it's still not working, the next thing I would try is a different cable. And you have two choices at this point. If your consumer CRT has S-video inputs, 
it might be worth just picking up an S-Video cable for it and giving that a try, uh, because S-Video versus component video are very, very close, and especially in a situation like this, where you already have the DC Digital, you already have the best HDMI solution for the Dreamcast available now, and you're really just looking to do any kind of light gun games, I don't think it's going to be that big of a difference. Uh, so you could try that. If you were dead set on sticking with RGB, I think this is the one scenario in which I would say try to find one of those $2 AliExpress cables because the quality might be terrible, but at least you could troubleshoot whether it's your cable or whether it's something else in the chain. Also, if you have access to any friends with any of this stuff, definitely ask if you could, you know, come over each other's houses and try stuff out. Like, uh, do, does somebody else have a stock Dreamcast they would let you try with their setup just to make sure something didn't go wrong with any of the mods? Or do they, do any of your cables would work on their setup or something like that? Or does somebody have an extra cable you could borrow? But I think to start with troubleshooting, I would just start with uh, cable detect mode for DC Digital and make sure there's nothing weird going on with the settings of the mode. And if that doesn't work, I would try a different cable output. But I have a feeling this is going to be something weird. So definitely start with the easiest, the settings, and you might have to try a second cable. And I might suggest the S-Video cable just to have a, a different tool in your toolbox. Um, because the ones that you picked up, the retro gaming cables, SCART cable, and then the RGB to comp to convert it to component video should work. I don't know if I've tried those exactly. I've definitely tried the HD Retrovision betas, but which, for the record, I have no clue why they're not out yet. That was worked great the last two times I tested them, so I don't know what's up with that. But if you want to go high-quality 15 kilohertz RGB to component with the Dreamcast, I mean, it seems like you already got the right setup, so uh, I would definitely try that. Also, you said, um, do I have any suggestions for light guns? for um, PlayStation 1, 2, and Saturn or Dreamcast for use with an HD Retrovision heavy ecosystem. So the only thing I would add about HD Retrovision is that their cables don't break out composite video. I think, I think you could use a Y adapter on the green output of the HD Retrovision PlayStation cables if you wanted to, for example, use a PlayStation 2 to also play PS1 games and use the light gun. But I would check on their website to double check that. I, I vaguely remember testing this in the past, but that would really be the only thing to add. Otherwise, get whatever light guns seem to work for your setup. Um, and I just know that the PlayStation ones do a, a have you connect the composite video input so you could scan and detect the signal. Daniel Lodato is looking to consoleize a Game Gear and wants to use an SNES multi-out for use with HD Retrovision cables to get video output. And they were kind of wondering how to handle the different output signals of it. And while this would have been kind of a complicated conversation, in the context of what you're doing, this is actually a pretty easy answer. Assuming you're using Tim's kit or any of the kits that have composite, um, RGB, and S-Video output, I would simply connect the SNES multi-out, connect the RGB, connect S-Video, connect Chroma and Luma, and connect composite video, and just don't connect anything to C-Sync, and you should be totally fine. Um, in that scenario, you would be able to use the HD Retrovision cables, which get synced from composite, and you would also be able to use any Super Nintendo S-Video or composite cables. And even if you weren't even looking to do that, 
it's a neat little bonus. It's three extra wires. The, it's already there. You might as well just do it. So I think that would be the easiest solution for you. I don't think you'd run into any issues. The only problem would be is if you had a PAL SNES cable, uh, and that might be an issue because of of the way things were kind of working, but I don't think you'd run into that issue with HD retrovisions. That would only be a PAL RGB SCART cable. So that should be okay, but please correct me if I'm not understanding the scenario correct. Tim's Game Gear board, which offers all those outputs, just wire composite video at the very least. I'd throw in S video as well. Uh, and don't even wire up uh, TTL sync or any kind of C sync and just use the HD retrovisions. And that should be the solution. Gord Captain wants to know where to get a good set of S video cables. I guess they already have other S video cables for consoles, and then those are going to get fed to a decent quality S video switch, and they were just looking for the final connection from the S video switch to the RetroTINK 5X. And I personally don't know of any brands. All of the ones that I have are very old, uh, and they're either monster cables or shielded or stuff that I found a while back. And funny enough, I did in my bin of cables once find an unshielded S-Video cable and couldn't figure out why everything looked terrible. Then I realized what it was, threw the cable out and got another one. So if anybody has any recommendations, please post below. But I think generally in situations like this, I would say look for shielded S-Video cables, even on Amazon or eBay or whatever else, and get something reasonably priced. Don't spend a lot of money on it and just buy it knowing that there's a small chance that you're going to get ripped off. I've definitely bought cables that said shielded that they definitely were not shielded at all. Uh, but unless anybody knows of a really solid link, you know, a place where you know that they're well built, um, I would just pick the cheapest one that says shielded, cross your fingers, and you might have to buy a second. You could always try to make your own as well, but you know, that's a lot of work for something that you might be able to spend 10 bucks to have it done for you. It's really just depends on if that's something you enjoy doing or would enjoy tinkering with, or if you really just want to try to find a decent solution. But I would just start by searching for shielded S-Video cable and see what comes up. Read the reviews, of course. You can't always trust reviews. Half of them are bots these days, but you know, you should at least be able to get started that way. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, please ask any question that you have wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really go back and figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I just like scrolling through in real time like you saw here. So any question at all, uh, just ask in the latest post. And if I miss it, it's never intentional. Sometimes Patreon just loses questions, loses posts. I don't ever delete them, so I don't know what happens there. Uh, and I do sometimes do stupid things like accidentally delete something in post or make an error in editing. So if I miss your question, please re-ask it the next week or message me directly, um, you know, if, if it's something time sensitive or anything like that. But anyway, thank you very much to everybody that watches, listens, and supports because it's your support that's keeping everything involving retro RGB going. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.